Think of the last thing that amazed you. Maybe it was something simple, like when we were out in the yard earlier this week and we saw a caterpillar that we had never seen crawling around in the garden. Uh, my daughter thought that was a really cool thing to see and that, I think, amazed her. Maybe it was something more impressive, like when you see a rainbow unexpectedly after a storm. Maybe it's even something more majestic than that, like a mountain view. Whatever it is, did it take you very long to think of something? Even if you were able to think of something quickly, I think we find that our capacity for being amazed can get exhausted quickly, and our remembering of those things that amazed us sometimes is fairly short. But in the story that we're going to look at today, the amazing event wasn't just something to take note of for a moment and then forget about. It was something that was supposed to produce a lasting response. Not just... Uh, see it and then move on, not just, hey, I should tell somebody about this, and then it sort of drops out of your memory, but something that's supposed to have an ongoing effect. My life was changed because I was a part of this thing. Turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 3. And I think in Acts chapter 3, we see both the fact of the amazing thing that God did, as well as a response to that fact as lessons that we can learn from this account. So starting in chapter 3 and verse 1 and down through verse 10, that was our scripture reading this morning, I think we see the fact of what it is that God did. I think we see that God has the power to restore both physically and spiritually. And we see this in the fact that here is someone who is lame, who receives back his strength to walk, but not only that, but he's confronted with the realities of Jesus and who he is. The first thing that I want us to see connected with this idea of God's power is that coincidences are not coincidences. Why do I say that? Well, if you look at chapter 3 and verse 1, Peter and John are going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. This would have been around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They would have traditionally done the second sacrifice of the day in the Jewish system around this time, and it was common for people also to pray at this time as well. And so God sovereignly placed us in situations during the normal course of life. Uh, They were going, probably, Peter and John, going up at this time because there would have been large crowds gathered and it would have been an opportunity for them to share the gospel message with those who were gathered there at the temple. Particularly in light of Peter's sermon that we saw last week from Acts 2, the church has been founded, they are beginning to grow, they are presenting the gospel message to their fellow Jews. And so it is likely not only were they going to pray, as was the custom of the Jews, but also to take the gospel to their fellow Jews. Then you have this man who is lame, who is begging at the gate. And we notice that he is someone who God has made lame. The reason that I say that was it wasn't something that was, uh, he wasn't lame, he couldn't walk because of some sort of accident. You know, his leg was cut with an axe cutting wood, or a piece of stone fell on it as he was mining or something like that. This was something that he had experienced from the time of his birth. He says he was lame from his mother's womb. And God sovereignly places him here at this moment. When we are confronted with these circumstances, we have a choice. Are we going to just sort of pass by these opportunities or are we going to take advantage of them? Certainly we can't take advantage of them in the same way that Peter and John did but yet we can take advantage of the opportunities that God places in front of us. 
verse 3. When he saw Peter and John about to go in the temple, he began asking to receive alms. And I'm sure that we have encountered not this specific circumstance, but similar circumstances. Do we, when someone asks us for something, whatever it might be, do we see it always as a reason to turn aside, or do we ever see it as an opportunity to confront that person with the gospel? Peter and John saw it as an opportunity to confront them with the gospel. Now we'll see from verse 6, that giving money isn't always the proper response in these sorts of circumstances. We recognize that in this case, this man was in genuine need. Sometimes there are people who are, sometimes there are people who aren't, and it takes great wisdom to see the circumstance that someone is in. But I think that it's easy for us to take an attitude that because I've been burned in the past, I've stopped to help somebody, I've stopped to to talk somebody, and it's cost me in terms of money, It's cost me in terms of time. It's cost me in some other way. I'm never going to take advantage of any of those opportunities in the future. Again, we need to be wise. We need to be careful. Peter and John, however, saw this as an opportunity to point this man to Christ. Peter says in verse 4, look at us. Now, why does he say look at us? Probably because in a large crowd there would have been a bunch of people passing by and Peter wants to make sure that the man is paying attention to what it is that he's about to say. So not only are circumstances uh, these that come into our lives that seem to be coincidences, not always coincidences, God brings them into our lives during the normal course of the day, Also, the greatest need is not always the most obvious one. What is the obvious need that this man had? The obvious need that he had was daily provision. He was lame. He couldn't go work a regular job. And so his only source of income was either the care of his family or the money that he received in acts of charity from fellow Jews who were coming up to the temple. And so that was clearly the need that he was seeking to be met and the need that was the most obvious one. He needed money to survive on a daily basis. Furthermore, he was, would have been excluded from participating in worship at the temple. Now, was this a requirement of the Jewish law, the, the law of Moses? Some would argue that it wasn't necessarily a requirement of the law of Moses that he couldn't, he couldn't be in the temple. But it was certainly, apparently, the custom by the day of Jesus and the apostles that if you were lame or had something else physically wrong with you, you couldn't come into the temple. What was their reasoning behind that? Well, in the Old Testament, in Leviticus 21, toward the end of the chapter, it said you could not offer a sacrifice as a priest, as a Levite, if there was something wrong with you, whether that was that you were lame, whether it was that you were blind in one eye, whether it was that you couldn't hear. And in our world today, we hear something like that and we say, How heartless could you be to not let someone participate in something because of something that is wrong with them that isn't their fault? But the reality is that the reason that God excluded those Levites in the Old Testament from participating in offering sacrifices was to emphasize to the Jewish people the importance of the purity and the perfection of the sacrifice to the extent that those things are possible in our world today. There's a parallel passage that says that they weren't supposed to bring a sheep or any of the other things that they offered that had some sort of defect. And so the Levites, the priests, by their very lives and appearance, 
were an illustration of the perfection that God demanded of his people and in some ways pointed to the perfection of Christ as the ultimate and final sacrifice and as the perfect high priest. And so in the Old Testament, it was not some kind of discrimination against people because of a disability. It was rather an ongoing illustration to people of the effects of sin and of the perfection that God demanded. But this by Jesus' day, by the day of the apostles, had come to exclude this man from worship in the temple. And so here's someone who is outside the temple, the closest that he can come to it, is sitting outside the gate asking for charity from those who are going in and out of the temple. And so he probably wasn't necessarily thinking, he wasn't necessarily coming there with, with, with spiritual motives to to uh, participate in the worship because he would have been excluded from it. He was simply there to see his physical need met. And it certainly didn't seem that he had any expectation that his problem would be taken away, even though that's what God ends up doing. We see that God has the power not only to supply the needs that we think are most important, but also the ones that are actually most important. Certainly money is necessary to our daily lives, but is not our greatest need. In verse 6, Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. Now, certainly we don't want to read too much into this one account and say that this is a pattern for our lives, but sometimes we assume that money will fix every problem. And I think as we go through life, we find that that's not the case. Uh, sometimes we feel that if we had more money, everything in life would just work out the way that we want it to work out. But at best, it is only a temporary help because we know from a number of passages that money is temporary and it does not have eternal value. And so Peter and John are going to address through this miracle, pointing this man to his greatest need, which is the one who's going, whose power is the basis of this miracle. Reconciliation with God in Jesus' name is our greatest need. He says, in the name of of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Peter was not performing this miracle in his own power. He was not in some way um, causing this man to be healed because, as he says, his own power or piety, his own godliness. And this man is being healed. And we see that there is not specific language of conversion at this moment. We would expect to see things like repent or baptize or receive the Holy Spirit, things along those lines. But we do see that he has a response of praise to God. What does he do? Verse 7, seizing him by the right hand, he, Peter, raised him up, and immediately his, the lame man's feet and ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. So his immediate response is to praise God. He recognizes the source of the power that has healed him, and now he has the opportunity to go into the temple from which he'd been excluded his, his entire life to praise the God who had healed him. Now, is he yet converted? Is he one of the followers of Jesus? I don't think he necessarily is by this point in the story, but this sets the stage, I think, for he and others, certainly, by chapter 4 and verse 4, to hear and believe the message of the gospel. God in his mercy not only addresses our greatest need, our relationship to Jesus Christ, but often grants other needs as well. This man could now walk. He could now participate in the worship at the temple. And what is the only proper response? Wonder and amazement, not only for this man, but also for all the other people. Verse 9, all the people saw him walking and praising God. 
and they were taking note that he used to sit to beg alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So the people who are in the temple are recognizing that this man used to be the guy who was begging outside the gate, and now he's gathered with us in worship, and they wonder and they praise God. But I think it's important to see not only does God have the power to restore physically and spiritually, but also the point that Peter's going to make in his sermon in the second part of this chapter, that God's restoration of these needs, spiritual needs, physical needs, comes through repentance and faith. Because it's possible for us to read this first part of this account and just say, well, that's great. The guy couldn't walk, and now he can walk. And so that's all that we can take away from this story. But Peter is going to make the point that it's a lot more going on than just the simple act of his being healed. What are repentance and faith centered on? They are centered on Jesus. We see this in verses 11 through 16. He he points out to the people that the power to heal was not from the disciples. They run, they are full of amazement, but when Peter sees this, he says, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? So there's this question in people's minds, how did this miracle come about? And Peter is very quickly pointing them to the fact that it did not have to do with his faith or with his strength that this man was able to walk. The miracle came from God. And you remember that the the God had verified the authority of Jesus by similar miracles during his earthly ministry. Peter points this out. He says in verse 13, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. It doesn't say specifically about the miracles that he had performed, but this was to happen just before this time that people would have remembered Jesus performed these same sorts of miracles. Peter is going to draw a connection between Jesus' ministry and what has just taken place. And then he reminds them what they had done to Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. His own people had forced his murder, even though Pilate ruled him innocent, the people forced Pilate, essentially, to crucify Jesus. Peter emphasizes this even more in verse 14. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. So not only did you condemn an innocent man, but you delivered one who was guilty and again, condemn the one who is holy and righteous. They chose Barabbas, the murderer and the thief, over Jesus. And then in verse 15, there's yet another contrast. But put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead. They put to death the one who is the author of life, but who did not remain in that death. Even as we saw last week, Peter said it was impossible for death to hold him. And so again, we see these contrasts. He was innocent, and you condemned him to be crucified. You chose a murderer instead of the one who is righteous. You put to death the one who is the source of life, whom God has now raised from the dead, a fact to which the apostles were witnesses. Verse 15. God's power then is connected with faith. Look at verse 16. On the basis of faith in his name, 
The name of Jesus, which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. So what's he saying? He's saying faith is the source of the power for this miracle. Now the question is, whose faith? On the basis of whose faith in his name was this man healed? There's a couple of possibilities. Was it the man's faith? Was it Peter and John's faith? Or was it somehow both? In context, I think that it is most likely that it is Peter and John's faith. Uh, we do remember, of course, from Jesus' miracles that Jesus says on at least one occasion, your faith has made you well to someone to whom he healed. And so there is perhaps a sense in which this man has a basic faith, understanding of, knowledge in God. But I think the specific thing that Peter is saying is the basis of this miracle is that the faith that the apostles had in Jesus' name was the basis of their healing this man. It is quite likely, although not stated specifically in the text, that as a result of this sermon and his own experience, that this man joins those in chapter 4 and verse 4 who believe in the gospel message. Faith must have Jesus as its object. Not I have faith, but faith in the name of Jesus, Jesus as the person. We'll see that again in chapter 4 and verse 12. There's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. This faith healed fully and healed visibly. Sometimes today people will say, well, if you want to be healed, you have to have a certain measure of faith. The issue was not the quantity or the amount or the strength of the faith in this particular account. The issue was, who was the faith in? He says in verse 16, on the basis of faith in his name, in Jesus. The healing was clearly by God's gracious choice, not by the demand of the apostles. We'll see an account later in Acts where there's a man named Simon who has this perspective. If I get the ritual right, if I buy the ability to do this thing, I can perform miracles too, just like the apostles. But the way that the apostles approached miracles and the way that a magician, someone with that perspective, approached miracles was two different things. One perspective was God graciously grants the ability to heal according to his timing, his purpose, the example that he is setting in a specific instance. The other perspective was if I just get the ritual right, I can force the deity to do my will. This is a pagan idea. This is the idea that we see demonstrated by the apostles. The healing was then a miraculous sign to authenticate the message of the apostles. And just as an aside, although God certainly has the power to heal people in a miraculous way today, there is no one who is today authorized as an apostle to go around healing in the way that Peter and John did in this example. So repentance and faith is tied to the person of Jesus Christ. It must be in him, but repentance and faith also are necessary to go before God's blessing. Peter's going to make this point in the second part here of the chapter. He's going to highlight once again their sin, but point out that even ignorant sin requires repentance. Look at verse 17. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. 
But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. He's saying even ignorant sin demands repentance, but even ignorant sin is not entirely ignorant. Why do I say that? Look at verse 18. The things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets. Was the coming of the Messiah foretold? Yes. Should the people have recognized his coming? Yes. And so even though they behaved at some measure in ignorance by crucifying Christ, they were guilty of having rejected the message of the prophets and the message of Jesus himself. The religious leaders called him a fool. They called him demon-possessed. They denied that his power was from God. And the people who followed their example were similarly led astray in some measure of ignorance and yet with guilt having crucified Christ. The only proper response to any sin, whether there is a measure of ignorance or not, is to turn away from it, to repent. Repentance in verse 19 was the condition for the return of the Messiah to restore all things. Therefore, repent and return so your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you. Repentance would bring forgiveness. Repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. We all have a problem of sin. We have all sinned from the moment that we are born and condemned along with Adam because of his sin back in the beginning in the Garden of Eden. So all of us have a problem of sin. The only solution to that sin is to turn away from it and to turn to Christ to receive forgiveness of that sin. We can't deal with our sin by trying harder, by trying to sort of tip the scales in our favor. We can never undo the fact of even a single sin and we have all done many more than one sin, right? And so we think perhaps if I just try harder, if I do the right religious uh, ceremonies, if I'm a good person, then we can sort of ignore that. But God can't ignore that sin. What does he say must happen? Repent and return. Turn away from these things. Why? So that your sins may be wiped away. Without repentance, there is not forgiveness of sin. What would happen if they turned away, if they repented, if they received this forgiveness? It says that times of refreshing would come from the presence of the Lord. God would bring restoration to them as a people. And then it says repentance would bring the return of the Messiah, verse 20, that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Where is Jesus at this time? He is in heaven. It says, whom heaven must receive. Was his return unexpected or was it outlined in prophetic writings and speech? It, was, it had been foretold. Christ would return. And it came through the mouth of the prophets that he would come at the proper time until the period of restoration of all things. So here's a question we have to ask ourselves. Was the Jewish failure to repent an obstacle to God's plan? 
Yes and no. Yes, in the sense that the unfolding of God's plan would not take place until their repentance. No, in the sense that God himself was the one who would have to bring about that repentance and he would bring it about at the proper time. And so we have this, uh, again, this sort of collision of these ideas that I am responsible for the things that I do. The Jewish people were guilty for crucifying Christ. They would be guilty if they chose not to repent as Peter was urging them to, to repent. And yet even their sinful acts brought about God's plan and even God's turning them away from their sinful acts would be brought about by God at the proper time to bring about the end times events in which Christ will rule and reign for all eternity. Which thing is it that we're supposed to focus on? Do we... Are we able to advance God's plan even by a moment? No. And yet we ought to obey the things that he has called us to do so that our disobedience is not in any way a delay in that plan. And I, how do we reconcile these things? They are mysterious, how they intersect, how they coincide, how they seemingly oppose each other. And yet it's very clear that we ought to obey God and that God will bring about His plan at the proper time. We may not fully understand how those things connect, but we certainly can recognize that we must do what God has called us to do. And just like God's people Israel needed to repent of their sin and turn to Christ, so any of us who have never turned away from our sin and turned to Christ must do so in order to have a right relationship with God, because He is the only person by whom we can be saved, and because, as we see in verse 22 and 23, that failure to repent will bring judgment. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. So what's the point of that verse? If God has appointed the prophet, if God has appointed the message... You have a responsibility to listen to it and to obey it. And I would argue that every time that God speaks in Scripture, there is an expected response. And this is where there's a difference between something that is amazing, that we see in the course of our everyday lives, that we remember for a little while and then it fades from our memory and it ceases to affect our lives, and us encountering something that is a sign of God's power, us encountering the gospel message, the one we can forget about and the fact that we had a trip to the Rocky Mountains or saw a beautiful sunset or all those sorts of things, that doesn't have eternal consequences if we forget about it. But if we hear God's message and we refuse it or we turn away from it or we fail to obey it, that does have eternal consequences. Not just because it's coming through God's designated messenger, like it says in verse 22, but also because God has outlined the punishment that will follow for not repenting, for not obeying. Verse 23, And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Peter's saying, You heard the prophets? You heard John the Baptist? You heard Jesus? And up to this point, you've rejected them. So where do you stand? You stand condemned in God's sight, people of Israel. What do you need to do? You need to return 
to turn away from that sin, to turn to the Christ that you have rejected. Repentance then would be the true fulfillment of God's promises. Verse 24, Likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. God had foretold that these days would come. We don't have a specific prophecy of Samuel recorded for us in the Old Testament other than the fact that he was the one who anointed David to be the king of Israel and in those things foretold God's promises, God's covenant to David of what would take place later on. The Jews were the heirs of God's promises, God's word. Verse 25, it is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Jews were the ones who were specifically the beneficiaries of God's kindness in that God had sent Jesus to them first. Verse 26, For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. So think back on the the course of the Old Testament. God says way back in Genesis 12 that I'll give you a land, I'll give you descendants, and in you all the nations of the world will be blessed. These were promises given to Abraham and through him to the Jewish nation. And how sad, how tragic, how empty would it be if they saw the Messiah possessing all of the promises, all of the knowledge that God had given to them, and they still continued to reject Jesus as the Messiah. I think there's something in that for us to think about as well. If we have heard God's truth, if we know the Bible, and we still turn aside from it, then like the Jews, we are rejecting God, not on the basis of some measure of ignorance like the Gentiles did, but on the basis of knowledge. And God will certainly hold us accountable for having turned aside from those things. And we know as God's people, we cannot lose our salvation, and yet there is a sense in which if we profess Christ and yet reject these things, we should examine our salvation, and in which God does not take sin among his people lightly. And so I know that Peter is addressing the Jews who are not yet those who followed God, But this is something that we too should take seriously. Look at the warning passages in Hebrews. God takes sin seriously. God takes rejection of his truth when it's been heard seriously, whether it's those who have never turned to Christ or those who have professed to have turned to Christ. God had foretold that these times of restoration would come to the people of Israel. Their rejection of the Messiah in some sense introduced a delay in this purpose and this plan of God, not one that God didn't see coming, but one that God had incorporated into his plan. Peter is offering these people, so to speak, a second chance. Are you going to continue to reject the Messiah as you have already in recent days crucified him? Or are you going to see in the healing of this man God's power that is connected with faith in the one that you have rejected, who is the only one by whom you can receive salvation. That was the question 
that the people that Peter is addressing had to wrestle with. Am I going to see in this miracle another sign and reject it, even as I and others have rejected the signs that Jesus performed and denied him as the Messiah? Or will this sign be yet something else that points me to Jesus as the Messiah at this point which I will respond properly and turn away from my sin, my rejecting of Christ, and receive him as the one who God has promised and look forward to those days of restoration, of God's blessing, of the establishing of his kingdom? That was the question that they had to address. What's their response in verse 4? We see in uh, sorry, chapter 4, verse 1. We see in chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, the, again, this contrast between unbelief and true repentance. Look at chapter 4 and verse 1. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. In the face of Peter's sermon about repenting of the sin of crucifying Jesus as the Messiah, those who are associated with the priests and the religious leaders are still refusing this message. They're seizing the apostles, they're putting them in prison because they don't want to be reminded of the guilt that is rightly theirs because of having crucified Jesus. And yet what do we see in contrast in verse 4? But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. So even in contrast to the unbelief that rejected clear and simple truth in verses 1 through 3, we see belief, repentance, faith, that were as much a sign of God's power as Peter making the lame man walk back at the beginning of chapter 3. And so as we look at these things, we have to say, when I see God's power, or more specifically in, God, in our day, when I hear the message of the gospel, will I reject it or will I respond to it? Those who reject it face God's judgment, but those who ex respond in faith and repentance experience God's blessings now and can look forward to God's future blessings, this restoration of all things that Peter refers to in the second half of chapter 3. So where are each one of us today? If we've already trusted in Christ, we've taken that first step, turning away from our sin and turning to Christ. But we should not take that privilege lightly. We should not have a complacent attitude towards sin. We should not think that this is something that is of little value. We should rejoice in the salvation that God has provided. We should thank God for the ongoing forgiveness that he offers us in Christ. At the points when we sin, we turn away from it, we confess it, we turn back to him. Because repentance is not just a one-time act, it's something that should characterize the life of God's people. This should again remind us of our need to have compassion on and an interest in taking the message about Christ to people who haven't heard it. Why? Because as verse 23 says, there is destruction promised for those who don't follow Christ. And how heartless and careless and selfish would it be if we have received the truth, but we don't care enough about the people around us to take that message to them as well. 
If you've never turned to Christ, turn to Christ. If you have turned to Christ, recognize the worth and the value and the kindness that God has shown to you. And then take that message to other people. Are we going to see the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear? Are we going to observe that in our day? We don't see that in our day like we do, did in the days of Christ and the apostles. And yet, can we see God's power poured out in saving people's souls, in transforming their lives, and in building His church? Yes. That's what this book is all about. The power of God in the Holy Spirit is building His church. It starts in Jerusalem, it spreads into Judea and Samaria, and it goes out from there all throughout the known world. And sometimes we read accounts like this and we say, well, that's something that happened in that day. The gospel message still has to be taken today. God can still use it to save people today. God will still build His church today. It's easy for us to lose sight of that fact. But God can do it. Don't forget the amazing work of God. Let's pray. Lord, as we encounter people in the daily circumstances of life, it's easy for us to see somebody walking up to our door with something to give to us and we say, I don't have time for this. Just like potentially Peter and John could have had that same reaction when they saw the lame man begging at the temple. We have an opportunity to have a conversation with our neighbor and we say, oh, I've got to go do these other things. Lord, we all have many responsibilities. We're busy, but help us not to neglect this great responsibility that you have given to us to take the gospel to people around us. First, we have to believe it ourselves, to have repented of sin and to continue to repent of sin and rest on Christ as the hope of salvation. But having done that, Lord, we ought to rejoice in the salvation that you have brought. We ought to take the truth of your gospel to those around us. We ought to have hope and faith and confidence that you are able to build your church today. You do it through weak vessels that are tired and often face sickness and difficulty. You've said that you've chosen the weak and foolish things of this world to confound the wise, the strong, the mighty, the powerful. Lord, use us so that your power will be seen in the world around us, and not that we will get the praise for it, but that you will as you turn people's hearts away from sin to follow you as you bring salvation, as you build your church, we pray that you would allow us to share in these things even this week. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.